So we're in Genesis 3. Kate read for us. It's already been read for us. One of the things that came to my mind as I was reading a lot of C.S. Lewis in the last couple of weeks was the word haunted. We are haunted by Genesis 3. And we're also haunted by basically Genesis 1 through 3. We're haunted by the fact that here is the garden with God, humanity, and it is good. And we're also haunted by evil and the fall of man in the garden in chapter 3. If you look back in chapter 2, you can if you would like to, but verses 7 through 8, God formed man out of the dust, breathes life into them, makes them a living being. And he puts them in the garden, puts him in the garden to keep it, cultivate it, and to enjoy it. And that is so interesting because dust is not what we think of being life in the beginning. Dust reminds us that we're made of stuff and typically death because that's what's happening with your skin cells and the dust in your house is that you're slowly dying and it is showing up on your fans and your TVs, okay? <laughs> and you're like, is this this sermon's going to be about? Yes. Okay, so you're made of matter. <laughs> you're made of matter. You're formed out of the things that God created. You are a created being. God is the uncreated being. And the Lord provides for the needs of Adam. In Genesis 2.9, all this beautiful trees and fruit, and he can enjoy the whole thing. And in the middle are two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So humanity is full of life and holy pleasure. And sadly, we're haunted by the fact that now we have experienced fear, guilt, and shame. So what do we lose in the garden? Well, in the garden, we had nothing to hide. Adam had nothing to hide from God, and neither did Eve. They were naked without shame, as we see in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We have no context for that. We can only imagine it in our minds. And we see... And with this one, we do know and have tons of context for, we see what's lost by having the knowledge of evil today. Look at what isn't in the garden. There are no babies starving. There's no murder in the streets. There's no depression. There's no anxiety. There's no worry about anything because there's nothing to worry about. There's no shame. And they don't worship idols. They worship God. So proving that this passage haunts us through dust, decay, and futility. We're haunted by the fact that our gardens don't grow easily. Our bugs eat our strawberries that we love. My lawnmower continues to still break down. Our pipes freeze. Famine kills our crops. We try to chop down a limb that's right there, and then my back goes out. And then there's always wasps around when you think that you're about to have a good time. And they're ready to remind you no, you're not. So Genesis 3 contains the greatest fear of all. Look at verse 19. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust 
you shall return. So we see that dust again. Once associated with life, now we only see it in death. So what are we even created for? I think that's a great question to ask. Why did God even make me if this is where I have to live? My friends, it's in the theme, in the title. You were created for redemption. So look at verse one, or point number one for us, and it's also going to be verse one. We're going to see the deceiver. It says, now the serpent was the most crafty of any other beast of the field, and don't miss this, that the Lord God had made. We ask the question, or if you're like me, you do, who or what is this serpent, and why are Adam and Eve even talking to an animal? Now, we can spin out of control, and I did for a few days on this, but I'm going to be very clear and give you, and give you what the Bible says, which is the safest place. Here's what the Bible, how the Bible answers that question. It takes the whole Bible to answer it. You got to go all the way to the end to get the answer. You really don't. It's there throughout, but you get the point. Revelation 12, 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So that's who the serpent is. It is Satan, the devil, the ancient serpent. And he says to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Satan does not attack the, the command directly, does he? And he hasn't contradicted it yet. He just plants the seed of doubt, appealing to their curiosity. So the serpent asks the question about the command framed in a way to make her see it differently. That's really clever. See, the question causes Eve to answer, it, the, to answer the question with more restrictiveness than the original command had. Look at two through three. You can see it right there in front of you. She answers back and adds a little bit more restrictiveness. You shall not touch it. See, the serpent succeeded, it seems, to cast doubt on God's motivation. And please don't miss this. This is so good. And making the connections. Making it appear that God issued the prohibition to protect his position rather than humanity's perfection or innocence, right? Perfection is not the right word. Innocence is the word. They're innocence. It is crucial to remember in this moment that there are two trees in the middle of this garden. We only think of one. But Eve can also, as she's looking at this fruit, see the tree of life right there. It's sad. And yet, here we go. Verse 4. The serpent says, you will not surely die. So he, he casts the seed of doubt, and then he gives her the lie. Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What I want you to do is I want you to cash away in your brain the word like there. You will be like God, because it's going to show up in a minute. A couple of times. See, the same lie comes to us today. Here it is. It's on the screen. I'd love for you to think about it. 
Isn't God trying to keep you down and dumb? Holding you back with his stupid rules and commands. Don't you create your own destiny? Isn't that why you were made the way you were? My identity is within me. My desires are my identity. And to deny those desires is to deny me. So we exalt ourselves to be like God, deciding why we were made. Sin then does not produce the fruit we think it will, does it? It produces fear, not wisdom. Did you know that we are the, mo- we are the first generations of people in the last hundred years to live, to increase the average age of living by 40 years? That's unbelievable. The rest of history has no category for that. It's like in the 30s. And we are still the most sad, anxious, fearful, depressed, and unhappy generation that has ever existed. Our culture seems to be unable to turn this question around, don't they? We never do it. But we need to turn the question around and ask this question. Maybe it is sin that makes me dumb. Maybe it is my sin, Satan, and evil that keeps me down. And God really is the cure. But we don't do that. That's the tragedy of the story. As I want it to change every time I get to this point, and I want her to look at him and say, get behind me, Satan. But she doesn't. And neither does Adam. They see and they look at it in a new way. All of a sudden, it looks totally different. And it's a delight to the eyes, and it's going to make them wise. And they take it. And what happens? They eat it. And what does it say? Their eyes were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they hid themselves and covered themselves up. The language is very emotional, isn't it? It's desireful. It's delighting to my eyes. It makes me want and desire things I never thought I would desire ever again. And the tree now looks different. It'll make me like God. And that is the lie. But they eat. Happens in a moment. Fellowship with God, severed. And also, by siding with the serpent, guess what? They also come under its control. The serpent becomes the ruler of the world. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Important books of the Bible. And that is devastating. And then we see sin's results in brokenness. Number two. Sin results in brokenness. The result, number one, there are many results, by the way. Just saying. I could go a million places, but I'm just going to give you three. Result number one, sin severed the vertical relationship with God, the creator. Look at 3.8, verse 8, chapter 3. The man and his wife hid themselves, hid, hiding They try to get behind a tree as if somehow God's not going to find them there from his presence. They used to enjoy God's presence. Now they're afraid of God's presence. The Lord God and hid among the trees of the garden. They hid in fear because of their shame 
and their guilt. Now there is shame. Sin will now make humanity suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And we see that all the time. Instead of worshiping God, now what is humanity going to start doing? They're going to start worshiping animals, worshiping the earth, all the different ways that we tend to do those kinds of things. And yet, and on top of all of that, they're going to make it look like a human being. If you've ever seen Norse mythology, Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, any form of that, Hindu, anything, what did they always look like? A mix between an animal and a human being. We are God, and we're really bad at it. So before sin, humanity was right with God. Nothing to hide. But after sin, sin creates unrightness with God. And then they do worse. They hide it and suppress it, just like they hid in the garden from God. So I'm going to ask you a really important question I hope you listen to. In the last week, month, year, do you know why you got angry? Why you couldn't sleep at night? Do you know why things don't work right? Do you know why your marriage is hard? Do you know why your friends betray you? Do you know why you betray your friends? Do you know why you are in pain? Why you can't stop lusting? Why you murder? Why people murder people? Why there's war? And even why there are politics? It is because of this chapter of Scripture and its truthfulness. And the subsequent population that led all the way from Adam and Eve to you sitting in the pew right now, they're not pews, but you get the idea. You have that same unrightness with God because of them. Because you are in Adam, you are their children. We know this, yet we suppress the truth or suffocate it or push it down. Guilt is, I did wrong. Shame is, I am wrong. Verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Result number two, sin breaks our horizontal relationships. What is the first thing that Adam does? He takes full responsibility and uh, says, it's all on me, man. Yeah, I knew this was on me. Is that, is that what the text says? No. <laughs> if you know the story, Adam immediately blames Eve. Have you eaten of the tree? I command you not to. Well, there's that woman that you gave me. She made me do it. You should have seen it. She forced me down. Threw it in my mouth. I didn't know what to do. I just ate. Genesis 3.13. What have you done? Eve says. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam and Eve from the very first sin are amazing at pushing the blame on someone else. Or something else. The devil made me do it. 
It is also important to see that God asks Adam first. God knows that, he's, that it was Eve first, but he asks Adam first. Why? Because it's important. Adam is the federal head. That's a very fancy theological term for his, he's the representation of all humanity. All humanity that comes after Adam follows Adam. If you are in Adam and we are in a doctor's office right now, that means you're a human being, I would tell you, your x-ray says, you are broken by sin. And isn't that our habit today too, to be just like Adam and Eve, to pass the blame off to our kids, to our parents, to our family, to our spouse, to the church, to the culture, to the country, to the politics, to the wars. If you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. Genesis 3, 16 through 19 summarizes the curse then. After they're done blaming each other, God says, here's what I will do. I will curse these things. Look at it. It's a crazy. Now all of a sudden, instead of children, the process of having them being probably a little painful maybe, but like not really. That's I think what's going on there. But now that I've been in the room with three births of my children and have seen the pain of childbirth, I will tell you, I never want to experience it. And I come to this all the time and say, this is the curse. This is bad. <laughs> my hand can tell the story of the pain of the crushing. Uh, your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. That marriage relationship is now distorted. And if you're married, you understand that. Even though we are full of believers in here today, it's still really hard to be married. Why? The Bible tells us. God's not hiding the truth. Our relationships are broken because of sin. And they're severed and they're hurt and they're damaged and they continue to be damaged. And then in 17, you see that Adam, listen to the voice of your wife, the ground is going to be cursed. Now, instead of it being easy and just overwhelming produce everywhere, all this amazing enjoyment, guess what? You're going to have to buy lawnmowers. You're going to have to buy a tiller. There's going to be roots and thorns there. There's going to be rocks. You're going to, the anger, man, it's going to be bad to get food. It's going to be really hard, and you're going to get it by the sweat of your brow. But it's interesting. Then he says, and the same ground that you're going to work, you'll now die and go right back to. The result number three, sin results in paradise lost and death with one interesting theme. We see the curse of the serpent then. Basically, I think what we're meant to see here is that Satan, as he is going to taste and experience total death, destroy it, destruction. That's why he's eating the dust, right? Because he's one day going to be dust. 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and your offspring and her offspring. And if you're a Christian, 
All you got to do is look on Twitter for 10 seconds and then you can see the enmity between Satan and the children of men and the children of Eve. There's real hostility, but notice that it says offspring. He shall bruise your head or crush it and you shall bruise his heel. See, the biblical conflict is set up here. This is the theme that is going to carry from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end. It is an important theme that we must understand. It is, I think, the core of this text. But I will hold off to give you the good stuff at the end, all right? So Genesis 3.19 says, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return Simply because of sin, we die. We go in the ground. We're burned, crushed, cremated. On my grandfather's mantle is my Oma, her body's ashes. I can't believe the person that I loved so much is that's it. That is the saddest, most devastating ending, ending to any story. That is the end of my Oma. And if you are not in Christ this morning, that is your destiny. And it is much worse because you get the same punishment that the serpent gets. So notice the biblical conflict. Notice how desperate the need is. Because then we get to the seed of redemption, number three. If you look at Genesis 3.20, it says, The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. I think that her name in Hebrew means life, which is such a beautiful thing. After all of this death and destruction and the paradise is lost, Adam names his wife. Which means life, which means connect it back to verse 15 of the offspring that will come. Number 21, God makes garments of skin for them, clothes them. Notice, I think the biggest thing is that He clothes them. God Himself does it. He does judge them, does cast them out as we see, but yet He does not do so by forgetting them. He shows his amazing mercy and does not abandon them. And then we get the inner monologue of the Trinity in verse 22, which is very interesting, very hard, very easy to miss, I think, the point. But here it is. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Notice I said to look at the word like and then connect it here. Like means that the serpent wanted us to be, he deceived Eve by saying, you'll be like God. God is a perfect being, knows all things, is above all things, exists in perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit, and knows everything. And evil does not touch God. It does no effect on him in his goodness and perfection. Humanity is not like that. To reach out and take the fruit was to know evil and then perform it, become it. 
Satan lied to us and still does. And then in verse 23 and 24, you see that God drives the man out to work the ground and then places a cherubim, which is a really cool angel that appears a lot in the Old Testament. And where, if you're a big Indiana Jones fan, Ark of the Covenant. They sit on the top and they cover the mercy seat with their wings. And then there's a flaming sword that literally just like is in the air guarding its way. That's really cool. But also sad, but cool, you know, from the modern reading. And then we get to the end of chapter 3 of Genesis. And it would be a tragedy on a cosmic scale if the Bible ended in chapter 3. Only knowing what we've lost and cannot have. But the astute and my great friends and all of my mentors and people in the room that I love so much who have told me these things and helped teach me these things, they tell me, Nick, the story's not over. Look how much Bible there is left. So I'm not going to hold back, all right? I'm not going to apologize for it. I'm going to do what Paul did. And I will preach Christ crucified. And I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon set us up, which is always a good sign. So Charles Spurgeon says this, open the door, stand back, and let the lion out. Good start. For he would take care of himself. The best defense for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy and the whole Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out and see who will dare approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. Amen. So our application is simply this. God created. You want to know why you were made? God created you to redeem you himself. First, the good news is this. Jesus is the seed of the promised woman in verse 15. Don't have to hide it. It's all over the Bible. Jesus is that seed. He is Emmanuel, the man, the God-man born under a woman, the seed that would come with us, to be with us, to crush the head of the serpent. Look at verse 4 of, cha of Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time can't come, God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. Amen. Number two, the good news, Jesus is the serpent head crusher. Also, if you're into monster trucks, that's a great monster truck name, but it's free. So the Apostle Paul encouraged the believers in Rome by ending his letter, by showing them the full connection between what Christ has done and if you're a Christian, what you have in Jesus. Here it is, Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Jesus' victory is now your victory. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. See, the great serpent, the devil, the dragon, the leviathan, the great deceiver, the beginning, bruised the heel, the seed of the woman on the cross. Paul refers to Jesus in Romans as the second Adam, the better Adam, the one who Satan tempted in the wilderness, yet Jesus did not sin. 
the ones Satan distorted God's words against, but he did not sin. He possessed even his own disciple Judas to betray him with a kiss. Where? In a garden. And he did not sin. Who sits and accuses you before God's very throne. Revelation 12, 10. And all of heaven cried out in a loud voice, now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Jesus is the serpent head crusher, and how did he do it? Third, because Jesus became a curse to rescue us from under the curse. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, the penalty of sin is death, Romans 3 says. And Genesis 3 says, blood has to be spilt for atonement of sins. And in the Old Testament, its pages are running with blood of animals to atone for sin. But we needed a perfect sacrifice. Don't miss this word. If you've hung in there, hang in there just a little bit longer. We needed someone like us. A perfect human. God mediator, substitution, but he was, and he was perfect and survived every temptation of Satan and he willingly died on a cursed tree for you and me. Our text we read at the beginning, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, I just want to read the end. Therefore, he had to be like us, his brothers and sisters, in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he has suffered when tempted, he can and he is able to help you when you are tempted. Hallelujah. And the seed of the woman crushed the serpent's head. And then finally, and best of all, the story doesn't even end there. It ends in Revelation, which is where we're going to go. Number four, Jesus redeems us and ushers his bride into a new garden city. Oh, boy. Jesus goes out in style, doesn't he? Look at 19. He came, became a curse for us, and rose from the dead. But what happens at the end? Oh, he comes back fully glorified. Look at it. It's so good. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. I'm going to cry, so just get ready. The one who is seated on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And his head, on his head are many diadems or crowns and he has a name written that no one knows except himself 
He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which it is called, he is called, is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in animal skins. What does it say? Fine linen, white and pure. We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword through which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of his fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. God ushers in a new garden, doesn't he? It's a garden city. It's called the New Jerusalem. And it is really big. Some of us look at measurement and we're like, why are we measuring heaven? The thing's going into outer space. It's huge. It's kind of hard to miss, all right? So it's a really big garden city, and he's making a new heaven and a new earth. And he says over it all, don't miss this. God cast them out from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And he says, my presence can't go with you there. I have to do all these things to even be with you. I have to build a tabernacle and a temple, and I have to show my glory on a mountain. I can't even manifest myself properly, or I'll kill you immediately. I'll evaporate you with my holiness. So it blows my mind when I read the next words. The dwelling place of God is with me. So good. And in the dwelling place of God, there is a tree. Not two trees, one tree. And it's called the tree of life. What Eve thought was not as good anymore is now back. To live forever with God. And not only is there a tree of life, There is no cherubim with a flaming sword at the front, is there? The gates are wide open. Because the Lamb has defeated every enemy of the church. Look at it with me. Revelation 21, and I saw no temple in this city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city had no need for sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into the glory and the honor of the nations But nothing unclean, no serpent, no beast, no evil, will enter this city. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And it's right here. We're going to end the sermon. If you're not a Christian, how can you be there? How can your name you know your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
repent of your sin and fall on the mercy of Jesus Christ, your Savior, who has crushed the head of the serpent and has made a way to God for you. Believe Jesus, the faithful and true. Do not believe the serpent who is a liar from the beginning because you've already been listening to him and your life isn't working out the way you thought it would. God is true. My Christian brothers and sisters, my application for you is so easy. Our world is messed up. It is full of evil and darkness. But worship the God who has redeemed you from the dust. Who, has ta- who will one day take what is perishable, our dusty bodies that have scattered throughout the universe in dust particles. Guess what? God is going to one day bring it all together. And he's going to breathe a new life into it. And he's going to say, enjoy me forever. That's what Christians get to look forward to. That's why it's not the end of the story. Dust isn't the end. So let's use up our, our Dysons and our Hoovers now. As my new friend Andrew Wilson says, the new heaven and the new earth will be dust free. Let's stand. Oh, our gracious Heavenly Father, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Sin had left a crimson stain. Jesus has washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. In your name.